Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody today. My name's Elliot. I'm one of the pastors here. And like Dale said, we're going to be wrapping up this message series we've been going through for the last few weeks titled Lost. And in this message series, what we've been looking at is we've been looking at a statement that Jesus made about himself. He said this in Luke 19.10. What he said is, he said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And as we've gone through this series, we've kind of discovered what Jesus meant when he used that word lost. What was he talking about? What is, what is he describing when he said that? And what we've looked at is how he wasn't necessarily referencing, you know, an inability to read maps or not knowing how to get from one physical location to the next, but he's describing something that takes place on the inside of people. What he's describing is he's, he's talking about an internal lostness, something that's caused when we try to navigate this maze of life without referencing God in the situations in this world where he made both us and he made this world. And so when we just kind of move through life without him as a reference point, that causes this internal lostness. Now, just like in Jesus's day, when Jesus said this, when you would look at a crowd of people, you didn't necessarily look at them and you didn't say, oh, wow, this is a bunch of lost people. Because just like in his day, similar to where we live, I mean, people are pretty fairly well put together. I mean, they, they know where they're headed. You know, I mean, Bevan, even in this series, referenced that Huntington was one of the, rated one of the happiest places in America. We have a ton of money here. I mean, compared to the rest of the world and even in human history, the resources and the money that we have are really off the charts if you compare it. I was looking on the um, City Chamber of Commerce page, and this kind of shocked me, but it said that we have over 16 million visitors to our beaches every year. I mean, we are, we, are a, we are a place where people not only want to come and live, but we're a place where they want to come and spend their free time. We're a destination place. So when you look at a city like ours and a community like ours, you don't, you don't think, wow, these, these people are lost. But, but when Jesus used this word lost, he wasn't referring to something physical, but he's referring to something internal. And so if we could, could kind of peel off the surface and look just below the surface of what's going on in the hearts and the minds of people around us, we would notice these signs of lostness. What we would see is this continual going in circles phenomenon that always characterizes someone who's lost. What we would see is we would see continuous attempts and pursuits at relationships and happiness only to end up in the same place over and over again. We'd see the fear and the desperation grow as what was hoped for isn't realized. And we would see the emptiness grow on the inside because there's just an unawareness of how to get from where a person is to where they need to be. If we could just look below the surface in our community, this is what we would see. And this is why Jesus came, just like this statement he makes. He says, I I came to seek and to save the lost. And part of Jesus' big plan in all of this is actually that he would include us, that he would take people that have been found by him And he would send us out and participate in his rescue mission so that other people, people who have not yet been found, could interact with and cross paths with us. And we could use our lives and we could point them back to Jesus, point them back to the one who came to find them. This is actually what Jesus says in some of his very last words on earth before he left. He says this in Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, he said this to, obviously, his followers when he was here. But these words ring true for us as well. 
And when he uses this word witness, it's, a, it's an interesting word. It's a word that in Greek, it means one who remembers and can tell about something. So what Jesus is saying is when he says, you're going to be my witnesses, which applies to those of us who have been found, what he's saying is that you're going to remember what life was like before you knew me. And then you're going to remember what happened, how you came to know me, how you discovered who I am, how I can change a life in that process. And then you can be the ones that go and tell other people about us. That's about him. That's the task that, that Jesus has given us. He's actually uniquely placed us. I mean, we, we chose this community. We chose our jobs. We you know, decided many, many people moved here. Some people maybe were born here, but you decided to stay. You picked out a house, a neighborhood, apartment, wherever. But behind all of that, behind our intention to be here, God's actually behind that, actually moving us and placing us in neighborhoods and in offices and in an apartment complex and in families so that we could be his witnesses. We could be the ones who remember what he's done and then we could share that with other people. And so as we wrap up this series lost, what I want to do is I want to I want to ask the question, how can we be witnesses to this community? How can we be the people in this community in Huntington and Fountain Valley and Westminster and Seal Beach and Costa Mesa, the surrounding cities? How can we be the ones that when people look at us and they interact with us, our, our lives point to Jesus. We proclaim, this is, this is what I was like, this is how he changed me, and now this is something that you can experience as well. What, what's it going to take for us to be a part of being his witnesses to this place that we live, to helping the lost to be found in Jesus? Well, there's a passage in the book of 1 Peter that we're going to look at this morning. And this passage in 1 Peter... Peter's the author of the book, and he writes it to a group of individuals who they had come to follow Jesus. And after they had come to follow Jesus, they were really wrestling with this idea, well, now that we've come to follow him, how can we help other people come to know who he is? So they're wrestling with this idea, what's, what's it going to take for us to point people to Jesus? And so Peter writes this book, and among other things that he addresses, this is one of the main things that he brings up again and again. And this is what he writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says this, he says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So there's three actions in this that I want to kind of bring out this morning as we answer this question of how can we be witnesses to this community. And the first action is if we're going to be witnesses to this community, we have to put Jesus first. The very first thing he says in this verse when he writes this, he says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. It all begins with putting Jesus first in our lives. And there's three words that I want to kind of explain what they mean really quickly. The first word is the word heart. Heart in the Bible, when the Bible refers to your heart, it's not referring to the organ that pumps blood, but it's really referring to where decisions are made. It's kind of the, the control center of a person's life. When a person makes a decision that then shows up in their behavior or the direction that they take in life, how they interact with others, that choice is made on how to behave or how to move inside of a person's heart. It's made on the control center. So when it says that in our hearts we're to revere Christ as Lord, he's saying that in the, in the place where your decisions are made, this is what it's supposed to look like. The next word I want to point out is the word revere. Now, this word, this uh, passage that Peter writes, it's originally in Greek. And so when Peter wrote this, this word revere actually means to set apart. So what he's describing is instead of it just being kind of like a part of the whole, you know, just kind of clumped in with all these other things, he's saying 
He's saying, no, you need to pull something out. That's what set apart means. You need to pull it out and give it a unique position, a position of prominence unlike anything else. So when he says that you're supposed to revere Christ, he's saying that Jesus is supposed to have a very important position that nothing else has. And then the last thing that he says is we're supposed to revere Christ as Lord. And again, this word Lord, we're not going to use this very often in our culture, but the word really just means authority. The word describes whoever has the power, whoever the master is, whoever kind of has the authority and has the final say. I mean, in your, maybe in your work setting, maybe, maybe you're making decisions and you're trying to figure out different stuff, working on projects, but whoever, if you're at a crossroads at work and you don't know, okay, here's a few options that we have and we're trying to figure out which one we're going to take, which road we're going to take. Whoever has the final say, whoever has the ability to say, okay, this is the path we're going to take and we're all as a team going to move in this direction. That's the authority. That's the boss. The boss is the one who says, okay, out of all these options, this is what we're going to do. Well, that really describes what the word Lord is. The word Lord is the one who has the final say in a given situation. They have the authority. So if you add these up, what Peter is saying to these people when he says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, what he's saying is in the decision-making center of who you are, Jesus is to have the final say. That's what he's saying. He's saying that where you make your decisions, Jesus is supposed to be the one who, who determines what you do. And this is not something that comes easily to us. This is not something that's just automatic. We can't just assume that, okay, I gave my life to him. I've decided to follow him. So now suddenly everything I do is just going to line up with the way that he wants me to live. This is not something that is, that's natural or easy or we just tend to live this way. This is something that we have to repeatedly choose over and over to put him first. See, if, if in the decision-making center of who we are, if he's going to have the final say, then what that means is we really have to leave our egos at the door. And we've got to come to the conclusion that what he says to do is what is actually best for us. It's not necessarily what I feel is best or what I think is best or what others say, but it's what he says is best. That's what's best. And so that means that's the direction that I'm going to head in. And this could look a lot of different ways. I mean, maybe you're in a situation where there's a lot of peer pressure, and the crowd is kind of pushing you to head in one direction, but Jesus says, no, I want you to do this instead. And so the question is, are we going to stand on what Jesus said and say, no, Jesus said this, so I'm going to do this, or are we going to go along with the crowd? Are we going to risk standing out from the crowd in order to stand on what Jesus said? It's what putting him first might require. I mean, maybe it's a situation where you're in a business setting, and your boss asks you to do something that's, you know, maybe not the most favorable task in the office. And he asks you to do this. You know, are you going to go and complain to the other coworkers about how horrible the boss is and you can't believe that he would ask you to do this? Or are you going to do that task with excellence and, and put your whole heart into it and do it as hard as you can, working harder than you have to? Again, that's a situation, just kind of an everyday routine. We encounter that all the time where it's really a question of, okay, Who's going to be Lord here? Who's going to have the final say? Am I just going to kind of do what I want? Or is Jesus going to have the final say? Maybe it's a situation where somebody wrongs you, and you have an opportunity to get even with them. Are you going to take that opportunity and get even with them? Or are you going to forgive? I mean, again, just, I mean, you can just go on and on. I mean, maybe you wronged somebody. You're going to sweep it under the carpet and just justify it, and, oh, you know, they had it come in, or, oh, they should just grow some thicker skin. 
Or is it, well, you know what? Jesus said, I need to go to them and I need to, I need to clear this up. I need to ask for forgiveness. And again, it's just over and over and over. If Jesus is going to have the final say, then just kind of in the regular everyday flow of our lives, we're going to have opportunity after opportunity where we get to decide, is he going to be Lord or am I just going to kind of do what I want to do? I mean, for me, how this looked really recently is my wife and I were having a discussion about some goals that we have for this next year. And the reason that we were having this discussion is um, in the three years since we've gotten married, I've been in graduate school the entire time. And we've had two kids. And the two kids are amazing. I mean, I was thinking about it this morning before I came into work. Yeah, here's a, okay, well, let me explain this picture. The reason, you can see my son's pretty cross-eyed in it, which I think is awesome. But um, the reason that we showed a Christmas photo is because, like, I texted my wife and I was like, hey, I'm working on this message. You know, I want to show a picture of the four of us. She's like, well, we don't have a recent photo of the four of us. And so, like, since we've had these kids, I mean, it's just like life has just greatly accelerated to where the last time all four of us got in a photo was Christmas. So that's the only reason we're showing this Christmas photo, because we don't have a, a new one. So as we thought through this and just how, like, crazy life has gotten, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great blessing, but it's kind of like, okay, we need to kind of, like, do some, maybe some stuff that refreshes us a little bit because, you know, we're really taxed. And so we started talking about, okay, this next year, what can we do as a family and what can her and I do that kind of would recharge us with some of the free time we might have, you know, instead of doing activities that just wear us down, which sometimes, you know, you just got to do stuff. What, what can we do that might recharge our batteries in this next year? So that was a goal that we set as a, as a couple. What could we do in this year that will kind of refresh us? So we agreed that we'd both brainstorm and then we'd come together and we would talk about this. And so we were on a walk one day and somebody was watching the kids and we were on a walk, and we, we started talking about this, and she asked me, she said, so what were your ideas for what we could do this next year? And so I shared my ideas about what I thought would be fun and what I thought would really recharge our batteries. And, of course, they were my ideas about what I think is refreshing, so I thought they were great ideas, and I thought that she would be 100% on board with my ideas because they were so good. So after I share mine, which I felt pretty good about, I turned to her, and I said, hey, what... What, what do you think we could do? What, what were your ideas? And so she starts to share her ideas. And as she's sharing them, there are a few of them that she shared, and the thought went through my mind, that doesn't sound refreshing at all. That just sounds like more work. And so in that moment, actually, what's happening is it's not about who's going to get their way. Is Elliot going to get his way, or is Allie going to get her way? What was really going on was, is Elliot going to go based on what he wants to do and what he feels like doing, or is Elliot going to treat his wife the way that Jesus instructs him to? And actually, the, the thought that went through my brain was, Elliot, when, when you got married, what you agreed to was you agreed to sacrifice what you want for the good of your wife. There's actually a verse on this. The verse is Ephesians 5.25. It says this. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So a lot of times in this situation, you know, I'll look at it as in terms of like, who's going to win, who's going to lose? Am I going to get my way? Am I going to win? Or is she going to get her way and she's going to win? You know, or I look at it as, okay, well, like, you know, maybe like I'll get my way 50% of the time and she gets her way 50% of the time. But if it creeps into 51 or 52 or 53, no, 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 we can't have that. You know, it's got to be even. We both, but that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus says to us is he's saying, hey, you should, Husbands, you need to look at my model of how I treated and laid down my life for the church to know how you should treat and lay down your life for your wife. And so it was like, okay, suddenly it's not about who wins, Allie or Elliot. 
It's suddenly about, is Eliot going to give Jesus the final say? Or is what makes Eliot happy going to get the final say? Is what makes Eliot feel good and what Eliot thinks is best going to get the final say? Or is how Jesus wants Eliot to treat Allie going to get the final say? See, what happens is over and over in life, I mean, it's not one of those things where it's just like just on Sundays and just in growth groups, you know, we're, we're here and we're hearing from God and we're connected with God. No, it's all week, every week, all day, through the course of life, seemingly insignificant situations. We're constantly being asked this question, are we going to do what Jesus wants to do? Are we going to put him first? Or are we going to do what I want to do? Am I going to be first? Or is something else going to be first? And when it comes to the witness of our lives and being placed in a place where we, we get to, to show other people what it means to follow Jesus, what happens is if we decide that you know, he's not going to be first, what happens is we're claiming to follow him, but on the inside, we're really living like we're lost because we're not following him. We're just doing what we want to do. So maybe he speaks clearly and he says, he says, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live. But we say, well, I know he says that, but in my special situation, here's the clause that exempts me from having to do that. Here's the asterisks on that verse, so I don't, have to, I don't have to follow through on that one. So I can just do this over here. And instead of giving him the last say, we're doing what we want to do. Or another way we do it is we just kind of charge off into the future with no consideration of what Jesus might want for us at all. He's not even a reference point. And so then what happens is, is it, we, we're sitting there saying, oh, I'm following Jesus, I'm following Jesus, but we're really no different because we're just kind of going along and doing what everybody else is doing. On the inside, he doesn't have the final say. But when Jesus, when he has the final say, when we, in our hearts, revering him as Lord, that makes an incredibly strong statement to the power of Christ to the people around us. When people see that difference and understand that that's why we're doing that, that, that points to, to Christ in a way that very few things can. And as his witnesses, when we put him first, what we're saying to other people is he's real and he can transform and he's worth it. So that's an opportunity that we have. And if we're going to be witnesses to this community, it starts with that decision. It starts with putting him first. The next action that's revealed in this verse, the next thing we can do, to be a witness to this community, is we need to plan what to say. At some point, we're going to have to open our mouths, and we're going to have to actually tell people. We're going to have to remember what's happened, and we're going to have to explain it to them. And so we need to plan what to say. That's why the verse says, it says next, it says, always be prepared to give an answer. Now, this is interesting. Why would it say always be prepared? I mean, why do we have to have a plan? Why not in the moment? I mean, it's, it's our story. It's what happened to us. Why not in the moment? Can't we just be like, oh, yeah, and then just start talking? Why, why does it say be prepared? Why should we have a plan? Well, there's several reasons for this, but, I, but one of the reasons I think that it says to be prepared and to have a plan is because sometimes telling people about Jesus, being a witness for him, can be kind of intimidating, and it can almost be like having an unexpected interaction with a police officer where they're interrogating you. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that before, but I, I, I have. One time I was, uh, I was just crossing the street in front of where I live. I'm walking across the street. It's at night. I'm assuming the police were probably looking for somebody. So as I'm walking, I'm, I'm just kind of stepping up on the curb, and a patrol car pulls up behind me, and he spotlights me. And then he says, sir, where are you headed? 
and I'm right in front of my house, and my mind went blank. I was just like, and no words came out. I, I couldn't remember my address. I didn't even point at my house. It wasn't like, I, I didn't even say like, oh, I live right here. I just was kind of like, I, uh, and just kind of like waved my hand. And then finally, I was able to say, I live here. But I still couldn't remember the address. I mean, it was like, if he would have asked me, what's the address? I would have been like, I have no idea. I'm sorry. But, you know, in that moment, you know, with the spotlight and the voice and where are you headed, it was like, my brain is just dead. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but sometimes that can happen when it comes to opportunities to share our faith. I mean, we're putting Christ first, and we're, we're in an opportunity where we can share, we can speak up, and we can be witnesses, we can remember, and it's just like, just like something just shuts off. So we need to have a plan. We need to, like the verse says, be prepared. Know what you're going to say in that situation. And so one of the tools that I've found the most helpful when it comes to this is having a before and after testimony prepared. Just a before and after. Again, the, the word witness means somebody that can remember and tell others. So the before and after is we remember what life was like before we were found by Jesus. We remember the circumstances that happened, and then now we're saying, then this is the result of that. This is what's happened. And so actually something that I want to encourage you guys with and provide you with is on our website what we're going to do is we're going to post a document with this message. And it's just real quick. It's just, a, you know, take you five or ten minutes to go through. It asks you a series of questions to kind of help you create an outline, some talking points, so that when you're in a situation, it's not just this, you go blank and don't even remember the house right behind you where you live, but you've got something planned and prepared. And it can be short and simple. I mean, it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be a sermon. It doesn't have to be five minutes. It can be 90 seconds. It can be 30 seconds. It can be half a minute. You can just real quick blurt it out. But you need to be prepared. You need to have a plan if you're going to be a witness. You need to kind of know and think through beforehand. What can I say? How can I help this make sense so they can understand who Jesus is and what he's done? The third action revealed in this passage is we need to get close to people. We're going to be witnesses to this community. We need to get close to people. You have to be close enough to them for them to see that you're driven by something very different. So right after the verse says, always be prepared to give an answer, it says this. It says, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, I find this pretty interesting for a few reasons. One is it says that people are going to ask you about what you believe. I think that's pretty interesting. It says that we're going to get asked questions. And then it assumes that it's probably going to be more than one person because it says everyone. So kind of what this verse is presenting is probably multiple times you're going to be asked questions about what you believe. So what is this describing? Is this saying that, okay, if you follow Jesus and you put him first, you're just going to start glowing? And people will see the glow from a distance and they'll be like, whoa, why is this person glowing? You know, is your aura just stronger than everybody else's? I mean, is this saying that, like, if you go out, you know, in the front yard and get the paper in the morning and there's a jogger going by and they don't stop and they're like, oh, oh, my goodness, like, tell me about your faith. You know, are you doing it wrong if that's not happening to you? I mean, I've heard some stories where that's happened, but it's never happened to me. I've never had a complete stranger walk up to me and be like, hey, you know what? Will you just tell me about Jesus? That's not what this verse is describing. It's not saying that if that's not happening to you that you must be doing something wrong. What this passage is describing is it's describing the fact that we are close enough to people to where when they look at their lives, 
and they look at our lives, they see a difference. And the difference points to the hope that we have. See, our decisions always point to hope. The, the direction that a person is headed always points to hope. Because everybody has something that they've put their hope in and that they're moving towards. God actually created us this way. He, he hardwired it into us that we would put our hope in something. We would look out into the future and we would project our lives on the future. And then we would attach ourselves to something out in front of us. And then we would, we would start to make decisions and move in that direction. We don't just operate off of instinct. We don't just kind of go moment to moment. But everybody is, is kind of projecting and asking questions of purpose and asking questions of fulfillment and asking questions of what's going to be the best path for me to take. Everyone's asking these questions. And then, and then they're coming to conclusions. And then they're heading off in different directions. And see, as Christians, it's not that we have hope and nobody else has hope. It's just that our hope is in something very, very different than the world around us. Instead of just kind of looking at the here and now and determining, okay, this person or this relationship is something I can put my hope in, or, or I can put my hope in this object, or I can put my hope in this experience. As Christians, what we're saying is we've looked up and we're putting our hope in Jesus. We're saying that he is the only one that, that, that we can anchor our life to. And it, when it comes to what is best for me, we're saying that what's best for me is Jesus. This stuff around us is, you know, all fine and good, but, but, but there's something that is completely uncomparable. And so that's what I'm attaching my life to. So what they should see as we make decisions in life is they should see that our lives are actually headed in a different direction because our lives are aimed at something very differently. So as people interact with us and they're close to us, they should see this difference. So the question is, are you close enough to people for them to actually see a difference in how you go through life and how you make decisions? When you get close to people, do they see a difference? And then it's, well, if you're not close enough to, for them to see that difference, then how do you get close to people? And here's the secret to getting close to people. This is really, really complex. If you want to get close to somebody, you have to spend time with them. That's how you get close to people. I mean, it's... You know, I mean, if you're at work and you want to get closer to your coworkers, you're going to have to go to lunch with them or something like that. You're going to have to spend time with them. If you want to get close to your neighbors, you're going to, you know, have them over for dinner. Start having conversations. Have a barbecue for the neighborhood. You got to take time and get close to people. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to see this difference. I mean, most people have hobbies. Our, our community is really built around recreation and hobbies and doing all kinds of stuff. Well, that's an opportunity to get close to people. Join an adult sports team, join a club, volunteer for something, get involved in some group. Not just to do an activity, but to get close to people, to spend time with them, to bump shoulders with them so that they can see that this person's not living for the same thing that I am. And that that contrast starts to create curiosity about, well, what is, why is this person doing this differently than me? And they can see a trajectory over time and that creates questions. Before I started working here at the church, the company I worked for had a lot of young guys my age at it. And we all like to surf. We all like to snowboard. So what we would do is on the weekends, we'd go surfing, just spending time with them. We would every once in a while go up to the mountains and snowboard. I mean, that was a great opportunity because you got all this time in the car with these guys. And so what happened is, as I did this, I had opportunities to share with some of them. And as I've really thought back over my experience with trying to tell people about Jesus, oftentimes 
It's come as a result of getting close enough to people to where they actually know who I am and I know who they are, and then they see a difference, and then we can start to talk about that. And then I can use that as an opportunity to open my, ma my mouth and share what I've already planned to say, and I can be a witness and remember what Jesus has done, and I can point them to Jesus. And so over and over, that's what's happened. As, as we get close to people, these are opportunities that are going to present themselves. One thing as we were thinking about this message today and really this series, and as we're talking about this idea of, well, how can we be witnesses? Something that we thought would be really helpful was if we showed some, um, some real testimonies of people who are part of this church, because we want, we want you to hear and see people who have been a part of this community, how, what life was like before, how Jesus changed them, and then what their life is like now. So that you can both see, one, like, how, what would this look like if I got involved? But another part of it is, so you can see that, hey, God is at work all around us. It's not that he's not working. It's really a thing of, well, are we going to participate in the work and help other people experience what we've experienced? So I want to play this video real quick for you guys of some testimonies of some people who are a part of the church. I grew up in a family that went to church on Sundays and with parents who sought God's will in their lives. Um, they ingrained a lot of biblical truths in my life, but growing up in church, I uh, didn't relate with the other kids very well. So by the time I got into my middle school years, I began identifying less and less with the Christian faith. I became a really selfish and arrogant person, and all I saw was myself as I went through life, and I didn't, um, I didn't care about the interests of others or uh, how my actions affected them. Before I knew Christ, my identity was largely wrapped up in school. I wanted to appear smart and put a lot of pressure on myself to do well and was often stressed out. As I pursued this image, I bought into the naturalistic worldview and was set on trying to understand the world without acknowledging the existence of God. In my mind, God was just something for the weak and not for smart people. I was living out the good grades, good school, good job mindset, and a desire for money was also driving my efforts at school. I remember from a very young age, my whole goal was just to feel better. And um, for most of my life, I was in pursuit of, of feeling better. And, and that put me on a path of, of using drugs. And uh, I stayed on that path. I got stuck on that path for uh, a good part of my life. I'm Lisa, and I was lost. I'm Jeff, and I was lost. I'm Amanda, and I was lost. In the back of my mind, I knew that God was real, but and I continued going to church on Sundays and um, to midweek youth groups. When I was a sophomore in high school, I started having a lot of conversations about God and what I believed with a friend who had a similar background in the church. It's through these talks that I realized that it was time to start taking God seriously. My godless view of the world led me to have serious questions about life and death. I struggled with what I perceived to be the finality of death, and I doubted my life had much meaning or purpose. This led me to feeling cynical and depressed. I also recall going through a phase where I thought I could just force myself to be happy, but that was another dead end. I had some uh, real life experiences that were pretty clear indicators that, that um, I wasn't doing a good job at running my life and I needed help. And um, a pivotal moment in my life was in, in 2001. 
uh, when literally I was forced to make a choice, either continue my drug use in that, that same life I had been living for all those years, or be a parent to my newborn child. At that point, I tell you, it was like, uh, like someone yanked the rug out from under me. Um, it was uh, the complete deflation of my ego, and that was my rock bottom. That was definitely uh, my rock bottom. Toward the end of high school, I met Nicolette, who's now my wife. She invited me to church and gave me some books that really challenged me. After a lot of anxious thought, I agreed to attend series with her. I couldn't attend for long because I was going off to school, but once there, I was able to get plugged into a Bible study on campus. In these things, God was really working to soften my heart. And through attending church, participating in my Bible study, and beginning to read the Bible on my own, I became convinced that God exists and that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sin, and I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. After coming to the conclusion that I was not a good shot caller. I was not a good person to put in charge of my own life. I really had to decide that um, there had to be someone that was more capable. And I decided that that person was Jesus. A little over a year ago, I was reading a book called Christian Beliefs, which is when I first heard the doctrine of justification. A light bulb went on and I was finally able to internalize that when God sees me, he doesn't see some pathetic sinner who, no matter how hard she tries, can't seem to get things right. Instead, he sees his child who he loves and he wants to have a deep, meaningful relationship with. This has radically changed my outlook on life and how I relate with God and the people around me. When I do inevitably misstep, I no longer uh, hide from God for months at a time, afraid of um, afraid of the fear and the guilt that comes with confession. Instead, I'm able to quickly reach out to God and um, renew my relationship with Him. Putting my faith in Christ freed me from my fear of death and gave my life true purpose. I was humbled in coming to Christ and it made me more teachable. God changed and continues to work on my perspective on success. It's no longer just about material wealth. God has changed my view of both my time and my money through showing me the importance of serving and giving. God has also really changed the way I view um, the importance of people and relationships. Since I've accepted Christ as my Savior and my Lord, I have a purpose now. I have a reason for living. I have a guide and a set of instructions, and it's called the Bible, and I accept that as, as my authority. I have a whole church family of friends who, who, who are going on the same set of instructions, who have the same goals and interests as me. I have a friend in Jesus. I really do. I get to pour out my heart to him, and he hears me, and he loves me like no one else has ever loved me. There's joy in my life because I know who I am in the sight of God, and there's peace. I have peace because no matter what trouble may come in this day or the next, I can look up. I can look to the one who overcame those, those troubles in this world. And I can rely on him to help me, to strengthen me, to walk with me. 
I'm not alone. I'm never alone. I have, I have Jesus now, and I get to live. I actually get to live a life worth living. I'm sure that in a room like this today, there are hundreds of similar stories. I mean, that's just three. But I mean, I'm sure today, this morning, in this church, that there are hundreds of you who, when you share your story, it's similar. And it's a story of, hey, this is what it was, and this is what Jesus did, and then this is what's happened as a result of that. And I I don't know if you realize this, but if you were to draw a circle around Seabreeze with a five-mile radius, five miles in any direction with Seabreeze where we're at right now being the center, there's over 400,000 people that live inside of that circle. And I don't, the stats on people who are you know, involved and active in a relationship with Jesus, people who you know, not just on a, on a questionnaire say, no, I'm a Christian, but people who are actually investing in that, the stats are around you know, 12% of our, kind of the people in our area. So if you add all that up, what that means is there's over 350,000 people within five miles of this campus. Those are people that we're in schools with, we work with, we are in apartment complex with, they're in our neighborhood, they're family members, they're friends, they're on sports teams, you name it. People who God has put us around who they need to hear stories like this. They need to hear your stories, stories of redemption, stories of transformation, stories of God opening their eyes to a completely different way of life. They need to hear this. And God's placed us here, and it begins with us deciding Jesus is going to get first place. And I'm going to actually live out what I claim to live out. And I'm going to have a plan. I'm going to think through this, and I'm going to be strategic and know, hey, this is what I want to share. And then I'm going to get close enough to them. So it's my story, but attached to my story is all these examples of the way that I'm living my life that illustrates that, no, Jesus is real and Jesus saves. Jesus takes the lost and they can be found in him. That's the opportunity that we have. There's something in your program I want to point out to you guys. Um, There's a little card. It looks like this. It's uh, got prayer walk on the top of it. Something that I want to really encourage you guys to do for the next two weeks leading up to Easter is on this card, it kind of describes what a prayer walk is, how to do a prayer walk, and then it's got some um, ideas of categories of items to pray for. So I would encourage you to do over the next two weeks is, again, God has strategically placed you. And so I want to encourage you to take this card and just walk through the community that you live in and pray for that community. Pray that God would, he, he is at work, pray that God would give opportunities. Pray that he would soften hearts. Pray that he would help you get close to people. Pray that he would send other people into that area that could join you and be a part of sharing this good news with people who don't know about it. And so as we lead up to Easter, I, I really encourage you to take this, whether that's you know a five-minute walk, whether it's 15 minutes, that's your decision. But I'd really encourage you to spend some time and think about the people in your community who God has placed you around, who he might have for you to be his witnesses to. If you'll join me, we'll close in prayer this morning. Father God, I 
thank you, first of all, for sending Jesus. Had it not been for Jesus, God, all of us would be on our own. We would just be wandering around in this maze, not being able to figure out anything. But God, because you sent Jesus, you, you sent the greatest rescue mission of all time. And because of him, the lost can be found. And God, I thank you for that. I, I thank you for, for allowing those of us who have been found to be found in you. And then I thank you that we get to be a part of taking this good news that, that in Jesus, people can, people can discover a hope that can't be shaken and they can discover lasting joy, and they can discover a peace that is that they can doesn't just come and go, but a peace that lasts. And so, God, I, I pray that in this community, with these people around us, with our friends, our family, our coworkers, God, I pray that we would be witnesses for you in this community, and you would allow many more people to come to experience what we've experienced and what others have as well. I thank you and praise you again for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.